you're visiting with us this morning, I just want to say welcome. I thought I had something down here, but I don't. But but if I did, I would be holding up a visitor card for you. It's not here, but but we do have them on the back table. And if you're visiting with us, we would love to get to know you. Uh, you can fill out a visitor card and put it in that giving box in the back. And, and is, there, is there any way we can pray for you, any way that we can encourage you this morning? We would just love to walk with you and help you to follow Christ and put your faith in Him. Uh, we are in a series in the book of Joshua, and you can open your Bibles up to the book of Joshua. This is our second week of this new series, and the title of this series is going to be Receiving the Promises. Receiving the Promises. This is what the book of Joshua is really all about. The people of God receiving the promises of God. Now, we saw last week, if you were here with us, that there is a larger story behind the book of Joshua. And it begins at the very beginning of Scripture in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11, to summarize those 11 chapters for you, the way the Bible starts is it tells us that God created a good world. He created a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, to be the pinnacle of His creation, to have a relationship with Him in the world, and that Adam and Eve sinned against God, and that the world was cursed, and that the world was broken by sin. And generation after generation after generation, every generation was exceedingly sinful. By the end of Genesis 11, what you are convinced of as the reader is that this world is broken by sin, and mankind can do nothing to save themselves. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves from the sin that we have trapped ourselves in. That's what Genesis 1-11 through really tells us. It sets up the whole Bible for us. And in Genesis chapter 12, God intervenes. God steps in and does what we could not do, and He chooses a man named Abram. He takes one man out of the whole world, and He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to put your people in a promised land that I'm going to give to you, and from this nation will come blessing to all the world. What it is, is God's initiative of a plan that would result in the whole world being redeemed from the sin brokenness that we have fallen into. It's going to happen through this man named Abram and through his descendants who will be in a promised land. Now here's the thing. In Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, Abraham's descendants are not in the land. They're slaves in Egypt. They're sojourners in the wilderness. And you begin to wonder, what's going to happen to this promise? But in the book of Joshua, what the book of Joshua is all about is that promise to Abram, Genesis 12, coming true. That promise being fulfilled. God fulfilling His promise to Abraham's descendants to put them in the land. So the book of Joshua is all about. Now when we hear the phrase, receiving the promises, and we think about Israel and the land, we shouldn't just imagine Israel sitting idly by, waiting for the land to fall into their laps. Now, the book of Joshua shows that Israel has a major part to play in receiving the promises. Just imagine with me for a second that someone notoriously rich comes to you with a check in hand for a million dollars, and they give it to you, write your name on it, Say, no conditions attached. This is yours, my gift to you. Do you have a million dollars? Yes, but not yet, right? What do you need to do with that check? You need to go to the bank and deposit that check to receive the gift. Now, that's 
maybe not the best analogy, but it gives us a little bit of an indication of what we see in the book of Joshua, that God is, God is giving a gift to Israel. He's giving them the land. He's saying this land is yours, but Israel has a part to play. They need to enter the land. They need to conquer the inhabitants. They need to settle the land to receive the promise. Yet they would never say that it was anything but a gift from God. It is the promised land. This is what the book of Joshua is all about. Israel receiving the promise by entering the land, conquering the inhabitants of the land, settling the land, dividing the land amongst themselves, receiving the promise of God. I want to tell you guys something that I've run across over and over again the last few weeks as I've begun to study this book. As I've, as I've read commentaries, as I've listened to pastors talk about the book of Joshua, this is what I've heard over and over again. The book of Joshua is the most difficult book in the Bible. That is not comforting to hear when you're beginning a new sermon series. It's like, oh, I didn't know that. Can we change our minds? No, we're excited to go through this book, but, but why? Why, why do they say that? What is it that makes the book of Joshua so difficult? Well, we'll see as we go. For sure, there's a number of things that will come up in this book that will be difficult for us and we'll have to work through and see what does this mean. But I think over all of it, what makes this book difficult for us as New Testament believers today is that the book of Joshua just feels so different from where we are today. We have a strong sense when we read Joshua of discontinuity with this book. Israel's situation and our situation are so different. I mean, I mean, what could we possibly learn from a book that records the nation of Israel conquering the people groups of a geographic territory and then dividing the land according to each tribe's inheritance? That's what the book of Joshua is about. What does that have to do with us? Well, I want to say two things about this question of discontinuity. And the first thing is, just that I want to say publicly that we're all learning together here. Okay, As we're going through this book, I don't know all the answers to that question yet. What does this have to do with us? Every week that I start, I'm going to ask God, God, what does this have to do with us? What are you saying to your people? And we're going to see all that God says to us because we know that this book is for us. The New Testament says that these things were written not for themselves, but for us who come after the resurrection of Christ. And then it tells us that the Old Testament scriptures were written for our encouragement and our example and our instruction. And so we know this is for us and we're going to see all the ways in which it is. But I do want to give one answer to this question this morning. How do we fit in this book? Where do we fit in this story? What does this book have to do with us? And for all the discontinuity that we might feel when we read the book of Joshua, there is a basic continuity that we have with Israel. That is this. We are the people of God on the mission of God. We are the people of God on the mission of God. So let's think about Israel for a moment. Israel was God's chosen people whom he had delivered out of slavery from Egypt. He he, he took them out of slavery and delivered them from Pharaoh, delivered them through the Red Sea. That was their salvation experience. And where were they going? They were going to a promised land. And their hope was to live in this land, to have rest in this land, to have peace in this land, to be the people of God in this land. But before they could take 
that land and have rest in that land, they had a mission. And that mission, as, as hard as this might be for us to understand, and we will talk about this in the series, but that mission was to conquer the inhabitants of the land as instruments of God's righteous judgment. That was the mission that was given to Israel. Now, we're, we're going to wrestle with this throughout this series, and what, what does this mean? What does this say to us? But Israel's mission was to conquer the inhabitants of the land who God had patiently waited for hundreds of years to turn from their sin. But in this moment, God's patience turned to a day of judgment, and they were instruments of God's righteous judgment on the people of the land. That was the mission of Israel. They were the people of God delivered from slavery in Egypt, hoping in a final rest in the promised land, but with a mission that they needed to accomplish first, which was to conquer the inhabitants of the land as instruments of God's righteous judgment. That's Israel, the people of God, on the mission of God, receiving the promises of God. And what about us? We, too, are the people of God, on the mission of God, receiving the promises of God. God has delivered us from a different sort of slavery. He has delivered us from slavery to sin, slavery to death, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our salvation event. The cross is for us what the Exodus stood for for them. God has delivered us from slavery. We are free if we are in Christ. We have been saved, just like they were saved. And just like they were hoping in a final rest in a promised land, we are hoping in a final rest in a, in a greater promised land, a new heavens and a new earth where we will live eternally forever in the presence of God. This is our hope. This is, this is where we are going. This is what we are delivered to. But, but we're in between that right now, aren't we? And right now we have a mission. And that mission, church, is not to go into a geographic area of the world and to conquer the inhabitants of that area as instruments of God's righteous judgment. That's not our mission. That was their mission at that time in history. What is our mission? Our mission is to go into all lands. All lands. And what we do as we go into all lands is we preach to the people in those lands that you deserve judgment, but that that judgment has fallen on someone else. That judgment has fallen on Jesus Christ. A day of judgment is coming, but now is a day of salvation. Now is a day where you can repent and be saved. That is our mission. That is what we are called to do. And, and that is what we must do before we receive the promised land that we hope for. One day, all peoples from all the world will be in that great promised land. But right now, until that day comes, we are on mission. And so, with all the discontinuity we feel, as we read the book of Joshua, we do have this framework. We, like they, are the people of God, on the mission of God, receiving the promises of God. Well, wherever there is a group of people with a mission, what is one of the most essential things for that group of people to have? Unity. Wherever there is a group of people of any kind that is on a mission of any sort, what do they need? They need unity. We see it in sports teams. We see it in businesses. We see it in government. Well, we don't really see it in government, right? <laughs> but <laughs> we should see it. We wish we could see it. If a group of people is going to successfully accomplish a mission, they need unity. And this is absolutely true for the people of God as well. If Joshua and the Israelites were going to successfully take possession of the land, they needed unity. And today, if we're going to successfully advance the gospel in this world, we also need unity. And our text this morning is Joshua 1, 10 through 18. 
Joshua 1, verses 10 through 18. And this morning's passage is going to show us the first interaction between Joshua as the new leader of Israel and the people as they enter the promised land. In this passage, we're going to see three ways that the people of God must pursue unity in the mission of God. Three ways that the people of God must pursue unity in the mission of God. Three ways that we, as God's people today, can cultivate the unity we need for the mission that God has given us. Let's begin by looking at verses 10 and 11. Joshua 1, verses 10 and 11. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you were to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So, if you remember last week, Joshua is the new leader of Israel, and it's a pivotal moment in Israel's history. They're about to enter the promised land. And last week, what we saw was the Lord speaking to Joshua and giving him instructions and encouragements for his task. He instructed him, arise with the people and go over the Jordan into the promised land. And he encouraged him that his promises were sure and that his provision of his word was there and that his presence would be with him. And and here we see Joshua turn around. And what does Joshua do? Joshua communicates the word of God to the people of God. Joshua tells them what God has said. He tells them that the Lord your God is giving you this land to possess. He tells them that we need to cross over the Jordan because God has said that it is time for us to go into the land. He not only communicates that message, but he even applies the message. He says, so pack your bags, prepare your provisions, get ready because it is time to go across the Jordan into the land. And we see Joshua even enlist the help of officers in Israel to communicate this message. God speaks to Joshua, Joshua speaks to these officers, and these officers speak to the people. And what are they speaking? They're speaking the word of God, and they're applying the word of God. God has said, I'm giving you the land, cross over the Jordan, so here's our instructions, pack your bags, we're going over the Jordan. This is Joshua's first act of leadership. His first act of leadership is to communicate and to apply the word of God. And this gives us the first principle, the first way that we are to pursue unity for the mission of God. Those who lead God's people must lead with the word of God. This is the first way that we are to have unity as the people of God on the mission of God. That those who lead God's people must lead with the word of God. This is what we see Joshua doing. We see him taking what he has heard, communicating it, and applying it to the people. It's simple, it's straightforward, but this is biblical leadership, and this continues to be biblical leadership all the way through the Bible. It's not man coming with their own ideas, not man coming with their own wisdom, not man coming with their own plans, but true leaders communicate what God has said to his people, and they apply what God has said to his people. And so what does this mean for us today? We are the people of God on the mission of God, and we need to have unity together. So where does that unity begin? It begins by the Word of God. And, and, And what it means is that first, we must prioritize hearing the Word of God. As a church, we must prioritize hearing the Word of God. 
I asked Candace to pray for me this morning because there are things that I'm going to say that I don't really know if I should say this or not, but, I'm, but, but one thing I want to say, that, that, sounds, that sounds bad, doesn't it? But <laughs> praying for wisdom from the Lord to, to, to really apply this well together. Um, and one thing that, that I want to point out in this is, is that if we are a body of people and we prioritize the hearing of the Word of God, then... And just as a pastor and preacher, it really means that every, every week, every sermon that we have is significant for the body. Like, like when you're in the nursery or when you're gone, it's significant what happened that Sunday. It's significant to hear it. It's significant to go. I'm so thankful that we have the technology to go back and listen to these sermons because God is leading us. God is speaking to us. God is, this isn't just a, a sermon that's being pushed out in the middle of, of space somewhere for anyone to hear. This is, this is for us. This, this is for the people of God here at Redeemer Church. And, and we need to prioritize hearing the Word of God, most of all by coming every week and hearing and listening and applying it. But, but even as a body, when we miss, by, by saying, I, I want to go hear what was said because God was speaking to us this week as a body. We must prioritize hearing the Word of God. But secondly, and, and more fundamentally, leaders must be committed to leading with the Word of God. There's no point in listening to the sermons here if they're not the Word, if they're just man-made ideas, if they're just human wisdom. It needs to be the Word of God. And this is what this means, that, that anyone who leads, whether it's me or someone else preaching or someone else teaching or even in a home group setting, whatever it means, if you, are, if you have a chance to lead people, you are leading with the Word. You're always leading with the Word. Let, letting God lead us. Showing people that it's, this isn't from me, this is from the Lord. And what you're doing is you are studying the Word to understand what it means. And, and you're asking yourself, what did God say to these people? And what does that mean for us today? And how does this relate to Jesus Christ and the Gospel and the whole story of the Bible? You're studying it to understand it. And then you're applying it to yourself. If you're leading with the Word, then you need to be applying it to yourself, letting God lead you in the Word. He's the leader, not us. And then, and then teaching that message to others, communicating it, whether it's, it's to little kids and communicating it in a way that they can understand, or whether it's to adults, anyone in between, you're communicating it in a way that they, they actually hear, what is God saying to me? And then you are applying it to others. You think about how many sermons exist on the same passages of Scripture. And we, we can even qualify that by saying that it's from people who believe in, in preaching what the Bible says and not, not they want it to say. And yet each of these sermons is different. Why is that? It's because preaching is not just explaining what the Bible says, it's applying the Word of God to the particular situation that you're in. And, and again, this, 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 is, this is why every sermon is different. This is, why, this is why the context of the church as we hear the Word of God is so important because God is leading us here. He's not just leading people generally through every sermon. He's leading His people in this place as, as people apply the Word specifically to your situation. So, so as I'm preaching, I'm thinking, okay, what does this have to say to the Ingrams? What does this have to say to the Millers? What does this have to say to the Marinos? What does this have to say to the Mosers? What, what is God speaking to us? How does this apply to us? That's leading with the Word of God. That is what brings unity on the mission of God, is letting the Word of God lead us as leaders lead with the Word. This is the first way that we see 
that the people of God must pursue unity for the mission of God is by letting the word of God lead us. Secondly, let's look at verses 12 through 15. 12 through 15. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. Okay, what's going on in these verses? There are two and a half tribes in Israel. The, the tribes of, of the Gadites and the Reubenites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, right? And in Numbers 32, what we find out in the book of Numbers is that these tribes were shepherds. They had flocks. And God had led Israel in defeating two kings on the other side of the Jordan. Not, not the promised land side, but the other side. And after that defeat, these two and a half tribes noticed that this land that they had now taken was really good shepherding land. It's really good for flocks. And so these tribes came to Moses, and in number 32, they asked Moses if this could be their inheritance. It's just known today as the land of Gilead. And they said, can this be our share of the inheritance, this land here, instead of inside the promised land? Now Moses hears this in number 32, and he thinks that they are repeating history. Earlier in Israel's history, they were afraid to enter the land because they didn't believe that God would give it to them. And, and that's why Israel had to be judged for 40 years in the wilderness. That generation didn't believe. And Moses says to them when they ask for this land, he says, are, are, you, are you doing this again? Really? When to judge us again? Everyone's going to die out here because you're afraid to enter the land. And, and they say, no, no, no. No, we just, we just think this is good land for the sheep. And, we'll, and we will prove it to you by w- when God does take us into the promised land, we will go and fight with our brothers. We'll go fight with them. We will not take our land until they receive their land as well. We're not going to take this land for ourselves unless we go fight with them. And with the Lord's guidance, Moses Moses agrees and says, okay, if you can have this land on this side of the Jordan, if you fight with your brothers when it comes time to take possession of the promised land. Well, now it's time. Now it's time, and Joshua knows about this, and so he comes to these tribes and he says, remember the word that God spoke to you. And again, we see Joshua leading with the word of God here, don't we? But he says, remember the agreement. Remember that you said that before you take possession of this land, you will come and fight with your brothers in the conquest of the promised land. And so he instructs them that you need to leave your families and your flocks here, but your fighting men need to pass over and fight with your brothers until they have taken possession of the land, and then you can go back over the Jordan and be in the land that Moses gave you. That's what's going on in this passage. Now what we need to ask is, what do we see in that? What do we see? We see a mindset of corporate solidarity. I don't know if you've heard that phrase. You can say it with me. Corporate solidarity. Corporate solidarity. It's, it's a biblical phrase which essentially is the opposite of Western individualism. <laughs> Right? I mean, we, we are Western individuals. We think about ourselves, think about our families. We, life, life is interpreted through the grid of me. Right? 
But corporate solidarity is that life is interpreted through the grid of we, the grid of us. It, it, we, we are part of a greater whole. We are part of a body. And, and these tribes understood that, that we are part of Israel. We are part of the people of God. And even though we already have the land that we're going to be in, we're not going to take this land for ourselves and let them go get their land because we already have what we need. We are going to go fight with them and conquer the land with them before we take ours because we understand that we are part of a greater whole. They had a mindset of corporate solidarity, and this is the second way that we are to have unity on the mission of God is that we must have a mindset of corporate solidarity. We must have a corporate mindset. We must have a mindset that doesn't think primarily of myself, but thinks primarily of ourselves, that understands it's not me, but it's us. This is how we need to have unity. This is such a problem in the church at large today in our country. People just hop from church to church to church because church is is about me. It's about what is best for me. Instead Instead of... just a fundamental understanding that, that it's not me at all. It's us together. It's we. And, and this, this is the part of the body that I am in. And, and so as we apply this, as we think about what does this mean for us today, I just want to give three applications on this point. How do we cultivate unity in this? First, we understand, church, that, that the church is a spiritual body. It's a universal church. We are united with believers all over the world in all different languages throughout history. So what does corporate solidarity look like in that? Well, God has given the local church as the designated place for us to express that unity. The local church is where we express our unity with the universal people of God. It's in the church. It's in, it's in local churches. And so recognize that, that the local church is God's ordained context for living this out. We are the body of Christ. Now, practically, what, what can we do to, have a, to, to, to fend off this individualism that, that, that always comes at us and to cultivate this corporate mindset? Well, three things that I think are very important for co- cultivating this is, is first, just, just gathering together every Sunday. The weekly gathering of God's people is the most important way that you can cultivate a mindset of corporateness, that, that you gather together regularly, even, even if you don't feel like it, even if you've had a busy week, even when it's hard, that you do everything you can to gather with God's people because you understand that we are part of God's people. This is us. I am part of this. They, they are part of me. And so we gather regularly. We don't forsake gathering together. Second, and I will admit much more difficult to apply, is disciplined prayer for one another. Disciplined prayer for one another. I don't know how many people realize this, but we do have a directory at the church. It's, it's online. We uh, probably should print it. I think that we would use it better that way. But we do have one. And whether it's online or printed, um, what, what's something we can do practically is just, just get that directory out with our families or in our devotional times on our own and just pray through it in a disciplined way. And you're going to come across people that you don't think about very often in our church. And you're going to even wonder sometimes, how do I pray for them? You can text them and say, how can I pray for you, right? And you can begin to cultivate corporateness, cultivate thinking, not, not just about yourself and your family and your life, but about your church family. We are, we saw this morning in Build, we are the family of God. We are the household of God. 
We are brothers and sisters with each other. And so disciplined prayer gets us thinking about each other. It gets us praying for each other. It gets us reaching out to each other. When we see each other, it helps us to move toward each other with something to say and something to encourage each other. This is such a good way to, to grow in having a corporate mindset. It's such a difficult way because it does take discipline. It takes so much discipline to, to sit and to, and to not think of ourselves but to think of others and to think of their needs and to lift them up to the Lord on their behalf. It's how you cultivate a corporate mindset. And then finally, just participating in the life of the body throughout the week, however you can, whether it's coming to a home group, we start home groups tonight, whether it's a disciples group, whether it's calling someone during the week, whether it's, it's uh, getting together with a family, having them over for dinner, whatever it might be, but finding ways throughout the week to to say to yourself and to others that we are in this together. We are, we are doing life together. We, we are not just a see you on Sunday morning and don't see you again until next Sunday morning type of church, but we, we are doing life together. Whatever that looks like, it's going to look different for everybody because we all have very different lives, but, but whatever we do, our lives need to be our lives, not just your life and your life and your life and your life. But this is, this is us doing life together. This is how we have a mindset of corporate solidarity. And then finally, what, what does this look like? And really, I think this, this is probably the most, the most relevant application from what we see in this text, is, is that we do this by, by sacrifice and by service and by giving and investment. This is how we really practice our corporateness is that we do things that don't benefit ourselves, but benefit others. I mean, as long as we're doing things that, that are with some benefit to ourselves primarily, it, it can still be about us. But, but when we start doing things that really have nothing to do with us, my life would be easier if I didn't do this. It, 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 would, it would be better if, for me if, if I didn't give this amount of money, if, if I didn't sacrifice in this way, all, if I didn't serve at this, in, in this project that we're doing. All these ways are, are ways to practice that it's not about me. It's, it's about us. God has, God has made us a body of people, and we are called together to be a body. Just, just, just like they, they could have just said, listen, we've got our land. We've already got our land. We, that's not our land. That's their land, and we're, and we're just going to stay here. No, they, they were the ones that initiated the agreement, we will go fight with our brothers, because they understood we are part of a greater whole. And even though that has nothing to do with us in some sense, it also has everything to do with us, because we are part of the same body. This is what God calls us to. This is how we cultivate unity on the mission of God. And so those who lead must lead with the word of God. We all must cultivate this corporate mindset together. And then third, let's look at verses 16 through 18. 16 through 18. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So in these verses, we see the people's response to Joshua, their new leader. As he, as he begins to lead them and, and to remind them of the word of God and to apply the word of God to them, this is how they respond. All that you have commanded us, we will do. 
We will obey you just as we obeyed Moses. And then they encourage him. Only may the Lord your God be with you. Be strong and courageous. What do they do? They offer Joshua their full submission and they give him support. And this is what we see. This is the third way that we cultivate unity as the people of God on the mission of God is God's people must submit to and support its leaders. Submit to and support its leaders. So when I saw this this week, it was just so encouraging to me to see how these two are put together in this passage, both submission and support. Let's talk about both of those together. First, submission. We see it here. We see that they they tell Joshua, we will obey you in everything. Wherever you send us, we will go. All that you command, we will do. They, They offer themselves in a spirit of submission and obedience to Joshua as their new leader. And this call to submission continues in the New Testament. Several times in the New Testament, Hebrews 13 being one of them, the call is clear. Submit to your leaders. It's an Old Testament principle. It's a New Testament principle that God calls us to submit to those who are leading us. And as a plurality of of leaders at this church. We, we, we believe the Bible teaches that, that there's a plurality of leaders in the church, and so, so that, that means that, that the people submit to all the leaders that are set up and that the leaders themselves have a submission to give to each other. And so this is something that we all practice in the church. But what does it, what does it really mean? What does this really mean to submit to your leaders? I think it means to trust them, to follow them, and to apply the word that they give you. You trust them, you follow them, and you apply the word. And I want to use the phrase meaningful submission. So I think on paper, I bet most of you agree with the principle that we are to submit because God calls us to submit, and I know that you want to follow God's instructions. But what does meaningful submission look like? I had to wrestle with this in college when I was part of a church where I did not agree with the way that the pastors did everything. If I was in that situation, I would have done it differently. I, I faced that quite a bit. I would do this differently. I don't know, I don't know if, I, if I really agree with that way of leading in this moment. And I had to begin to wrestle with what does it mean to be a member of a church and to submit to my leaders in this instance. And, and this is where I came down and... and and I think this is biblical for all submission across all spheres of life when you're called to submit, is that, is that when it's not sinful, submit. That, that, that's the principle. When it's not sinful, submit. If you only submit when you agree, what does submission even mean? right? If your kids only obey you when they want to do it, they're not really being obedient, are they? And, and the submission is slightly different in terms of the relationship same time, it is, it is a, it's following and a trusting and, and, a, and a obeying. And, and unless it's sinful, unless someone's calling you to do something that's sinful, the, the, the mentality we should have to begin with is, I'm going to submit unless it's sin. Because God has placed these leaders in my life, and he's called me to submit to them. And I'm going to trust them, even when I don't necessarily agree with how they're leading Again, otherwise, what does submission really mean? This is meaningful submission. Submission when it's hard. 
Submission when it doesn't make sense. Submission when, when we think we might know better, but we recognize that, that God has put these people in place, and I'm really submitting myself to God in this. That's meaningful submission. And we see in this text how important this is. Look in verse 18. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. <laughs> okay, this is one of those Moments where we feel discontinuity with, with the book, right? We don't put people to death uh, for not submitting in the church. We don't do that. We remind you that this is a nation and this is a government. And governments do put people to death. And so this shouldn't bother us too much in the sense that we need to understand the context is just very different. This, this, is, this is a government, national, state context as God leads his people. But the New Testament does take submission and non-submission very seriously. Takes it very seriously, and Jesus himself instituted church discipline. He instituted the process by which if someone is not submitting to their leader, someone is not following God's word, if someone is persisting in sin, not repenting, not obeying, that there is a process by which that is addressed lovingly, graciously, perseveringly, prayerfully addressed so that, so that there is unity in the body. I, th- I think most of you know from past experiences that, that I'm sure all of us have had that when just divisiveness comes into the body of Christ, our, our chances of being effective are completely ruined. A, a divisive church cannot be an effective church. And if there is not submission to the leaders of the church as they lead with the Word of God, now again, if, if it's sinful, don't submit. <laughs> But if they're leading with the word of God, then unity has to be preserved. And this is why Jesus gave church discipline. And so the church should practice meaningful submission to its leaders. The church must take non-submission very seriously through the process of church discipline. But it's not just submission, is it? It's not just submission, but it's also support. Because here's the thing. Joshua was still just a sinful, fallen man. And leaders of the church today are just sinful, fallen people. We, we mess up. We sin. We fail. We lack wisdom. And, and so God calls the church to submit to your leaders, but, but that's not all. He also says, support your leaders. Support them. Look at what we see in this passage. They speak the words of God back to Joshua. Do you see that? In verse 17, Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. What did God say in verse 5? Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. They speak the word of God back to Joshua. God has said he'll be with you, and we are praying that God will be with you just as he was with Moses. What did God say three times to Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Be very strong and courageous. How did they end? Only be strong and courageous. They are speaking the words of God back to Joshua. They, they, are, they are praying for God's presence in Joshua's life. They are supporting Joshua in the most meaningful ways. Submission and support. They recognize that Joshua, left to himself, is, is no leader at all. That he needs the presence of God. He needs the courage that God can provide him. And so they support him in this. And this is what we must have as well. The church must not only submit to its leaders, but support its leaders. I was praying about this a lot this week. I turned 29 years old a few weeks ago. For many of you, that's very young. (laughs) And, And I feel it. I feel that I've got a lot of life in front of me and not as much behind me. 
And as a pastor, I feel some days very, very insufficient for the task of pastoring. But I was praying about this and, 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 and telling the Lord, God, let me always feel that. I should always feel that. Not, not, when I'm 40, when I'm 50, I don't want to start feeling like I'm sufficient, like I've got this. I should always feel that insufficiency because I am insufficient. Who's sufficient for these things? Our elders are insufficient. Our deacons are insufficient. We are insufficient people. And we need support. We need encouragement and we need prayer. Regular prayer and biblical encouragement from the body. And this is very personal now for me and the, and the elders and the deacons, but, but this is what support for your leaders looks like. First, it looks like regular prayer for your leaders. M- make it part of your routine somehow in your days, in your weeks, in your months, whatever it looks like. Regularly lift up the leaders that God has given you. Pray for us. Pray for God to work in our hearts continually. Pray, pray that the gospel would be real to us and vibrant to us and, and that we would be growing and changing in our, in our love for God and our obedience to Him. What, many of you saw a, a very well-known author and pastor recently walk away from his faith. And it's a warning to all leaders and pastors that, that we need to be vigilant with our hearts and we need the prayers of God's people to, to, to say, God, help them to know you better. Help them to love you more. Help them to grasp the gospel better. Pray for us that way. Pray for wisdom. Pray, pray for God to, to give wisdom in the preaching of his word. Pray for God to give wisdom in the oversight of his people. Pray for humility. Pray that God would help us to always be humble, to never be prideful, to maintain our sense of inefficiency. Pray for us in these things. But then also encourage us. Just like they said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Now, on this, you know, I think this may just be like a comfort thing for us, that, that we speak a certain way to each other. And I understand that. that we, we might go to someone and, and you know, I, I, my flesh eats this up. To, to after a sermon, someone would come to me and say, that was a powerful sermon this morning. It's like, thank you. That, and that's, it's encouraging to me. It is. And, and I know what's intended in that, and it's encouraging. But how much more encouraging is it, would it be, someone said, Phil, God says that his word will never return void. And I want you to know that you preached the word this morning. And so be encouraged. That's so much more encouraging to, to my heart, to any preacher's heart, than, than just, you did a great job this morning. Because what you're doing is you're speaking the words of God back to me. See, this is not... This is not, whoever preaches on a Sunday morning, whether it's me or someone else, this is not that leaders speak the word of God and everyone else just listens. No, there's a mutual nature to this, that the word of God is spoken from God to the people, and then the people speak that back to each other, including to their leaders, supporting their leaders, supporting each other with the word, saying, saying God says, because of the resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, your labor is not in vain. And so no know that all the labor that you are putting in is not in vain. That's biblical encouragement. That's the kind of encouragement that your leaders need. We don't just want submission. We need, we need support. God, God says submit, but God also says support. And this morning I want to ask, personally and for the elders and the deacons, you pray about what can, what can you do to support your leaders in this way through prayer and encouragement, because we need it. Absolutely need it. So these are the three ways that God calls us to have unity 
on the mission of God. Leaders lead with the word of God. The body takes on this mindset of corporate solidarity and then, and then the body supports and submits to its leaders. That, that, that unity will come if those things are happening. But the question is, how will we live this out? How will we do this? Because, church, it is hard for leaders to always persevere in leading with the word of God. You, you begin to you begin to wonder, is this really working? You begin to feel tempted to bring your own ideas into the mix. You begin to look at other, other places that seem to be successful and, and, and say, what do they have that we don't have? And This is a temptation for leaders. How will leaders continue to lead with the word of God, not our own wisdom? How will we as a body maintain a mindset of corporateness and not, not cave to individualism and preferences in how we do life together? How, how will we continue in this? How, how will we give full submission and support to leaders when, when we don't like the direction they're going or when, or when they come up short and fail us in some way? How will we actually do these things? Because in our sinful nature, we will not do these things. Unity will not come natural to us, church. It won't. Disunity will come very natural to us. And so we need to fight for unity, and we need to have a greater source for unity than our own pull-up-our-bootstraps mentality to be united. And the true source of unity is trust in our true leader, Jesus Christ. That, That is the true source of unity in the people of God, is trusting our true leader, Jesus is the greater Joshua. As we read Joshua 1, we need to understand that that Jesus is the greater Joshua, the the head of God's people, the leader of God's people. And he has designed the church to function like it does. As our leader, in his wisdom, in his providence, he has chosen to lead this way. You know, Jesus could have chosen to come up and appear in every church every Sunday morning and preach a sermon to us. Right? I mean, he could have done that. We believe that. Jesus could just feasibly get here every Sunday morning and preach to us. That would be great, right? We'd hear Jesus preach to us, and, and we'd say, great, that was a great sermon every Sunday. Right? That's not how Jesus chose to lead us. Jesus chose to give under-shepherds and to call the body to corporate life together and, and to call for submission and support and, and love and unity. This is how Jesus chose to lead us, and we need to look to him if we're going to maintain unity. Listen, if we don't live these things out, it shows that we're not trusting him, our true leader. If leaders don't lead with the word, it shows they're not trusting that Jesus says he'll work through the word. If we don't give ourselves to each other corporately, it shows that we don't trust that Christ will meet our own needs corporately. If we don't submit to and support our leaders, it shows that we don't trust that Christ is the one who installed these leaders. And so really this comes down to do we trust in Jesus as our leader? Do we trust that he is the chief shepherd of the church? Do we trust that he is our head? And when we struggle to trust in Christ, what we must do is remember his trustworthiness. We need to remember that Christ is trustworthy. He's worthy of your trust. And how do you remember that, church? How do you remember that Christ is worthy of your trust? You need to look to the cross. So what greater demonstration could there be of the trustworthiness of Jesus than the cross of Jesus? On the cross, Jesus 
give the ultimate example of a corporate solidarity mindset. There was nothing about the cross that was for him. It was all for his bride, his people, his body, giving himself, sacrificing himself, dying for us so we could live. Dying for our good, taking our sins that that we deserve judgment for and dying for us in our place. He is trustworthy. He loves you. He is working for your good. He is powerful. He rose from the dead. He doesn't just love you, but he rose from the dead and he is mighty. He can do whatever he wants. All authority has been given to him. This is who Jesus is. He's absolutely trustworthy and he's our head and he has designed the church this way. And so we can, we can lean into this design not because we're trusting in a person, not because we're trusting in a people, but because we're trusting in Jesus, our chief shepherd who died for us and rose again. He is trustworthy. And so we can trust him with our lives and we can trust him to lead us as his church in the way that he has designed. I want to ask the music team to come up as we close. I want to close with this thought today, church. I said that we are the people of God on the mission of God. We are the people of God on the mission of God. Jesus, as the head of the church, comes to us and he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go make disciples of all nations. Go tell them the good news of the gospel. Go tell them that that I have taken the judgment they deserve so they can be saved from final judgment. We are the people of God on the mission of God. But, But, you know, Jesus and the apostles use another phrase to describe us besides the people of God. It's a glorious phrase, church. What they say is we are the body of Christ. Yes, we are the people of God, but more than that, we are the body of Christ. What that means is we don't just belong to God, as glorious as that is, but that we actually represent Christ in the world. He is our head, and we are his body in the world. That is our identity, church. We are his hands and feet in a world that is lost, called to go into all the world with the gospel, representing Jesus. That is our very identity. We are the people of God on the mission of God, and our mission is to be the body of Christ in the world. And to be a body, what must we have? We must have unity. We are members of one another, and Christ is our head. And he has put us in this body together. Redeemer Church, we are the body of Christ. We've been given a mission, and we can trust that we will receive all the promises of God as we obey his commands together. So let's stand and sing this song together. It's a new song. I want to encourage you to, to learn it and to sing it and to celebrate that Jesus has made us his people and his body.